Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We have a returning guest today and we're really excited because Becky Langston Bass is back to talk about more women uh, with London links because that's what she does. Uh, But more women that we really don't know anything about in history and we really should. Becky, hello. Hello. This was such a success last time. We've got you back to do more. Um, And you've got some cracking stories for us, haven't you? Yeah, I had to narrow the list down from about 20 women to try and fit this in. So (laughs) you had three you really wanted to do, but you couldn't find stuff on. Just give them a shout out. Yeah, so there were a few. uh, Well, just as always, when you're researching for things like this, it's always just like, is there enough information? So the ones I didn't get to include was uh, Clara Colette, who actually worked alongside Booth doing the Booth poverty maps. Um, And so there definitely should be more about her and and kind of how she she was interviewing working women and things like that. But yeah, unfortunately, no, no, also no biographies out there. Margaret Bryan, who was a philosopher, um, I'm not going to include, but again, very, very interesting. Um, And actually, uh, Elizabeth Wilkinson, who was a boxer, she is only known through her boxing activity. So we Mm. don't even know when she was born or when she died. We just know she was active in London uh, for about six years in the 1700s. Um, And she, she was willing to fight both men and women. So she was quite a bold character. But unfortunately, again, not enough uh, about her so those are the ones I wish I could have included (laughs) no damn but you have got four really really good ones for us today uh the first one I have heard of because and I think a few people will have um because we all get the Tudors rammed down our throats um because she falls foul of Thomas Cromwell not Thomas Cromwell she's too late for that she falls foul of basically Henry VIII doesn't she yes Yes, absolutely. Uh, Anna Skew, uh, who was uh, born in 1521 and died in 1546. So yeah, absolutely during the reign of of Henry VIII. Um, she really does kind of her position she, she, it, as in terms of like being born into her family. Um, it really kind of backfires on her because her father is quite a connected man. And it means that she ends up uh, effectively kind of being involved in the royal court and it's uh, it's during this period where she's involved with the royal court that that she starts gaining suspicion for her kind of over-the-top protestant beliefs um there's a lot written about her though that actually shows that it's not necessarily her beliefs but actually the fact that she was such a strong woman mm. that actually really put people off and it meant that she was just kind of 
too risky to have about. Um, and so they tried to implement her in various plots through her kind of later years. Um, she was self, self-taught, so she taught herself to read and write, um, mainly using the Bible, which she then memorised uh, passages from. And she actually ended up getting married because her sister ended up dying. So she ended up being married off to the, the, the husband that was going to be her, her sister, a man called Thomas uh, Kime. And he was a devout Catholic. Um, but because she was so young, she hadn't quite formed her own beliefs at that point. So uh, she does later become very Protestant. And because she has her own opinions and she is very opinionated, Um, they end up falling out quite a lot. Uh, Their marriage is the complete disaster. And in fact, he actually ends up kicking her out of the house. Um, Amazingly, she tries to get a divorce, which for a woman in the 1500s, um, you know, is is completely, you know, outrageous. Um, Is it good enough for the king, though? (laughs) Yeah, I did think that when I was uh, researching about Anne. I was like... It's funny that because you know Henry VIII can do it, so why can't she? And I love, I love this idea that that there's a there's a bit of an urban legend that she tried to appeal to the king himself. I don't think it's true, um, but there are some sources that tried to claim this. And we do know that she contacted the Bishop of Lincoln, though, where she was um, based. And yeah, she effectively asked if she could get a divorce. It didn't work. Um, she then tr- moved to London and basically just pretended she wasn't married. So she spent time in London using her maiden name rather than her married name which again for the time was was really unusual um her both both her sister and brother were involved in the royal court as I mentioned and so she starts kind of hanging around near the royal household and she is it's at this point that she tries to kind of she she's interviewed and, and asked if she can implement other people in the royal household close to the king who are basically creating plots so she's kind of the gateway into into that and it really puts her position at risk um, she's arrested on three occasions, so it's not it's not a terribly happy story. And um, in the space of a year and a half, she was arrested three times. Uh, she, the- um, so this whole period is when Henry VIII. So he does he goes and messes up the whole Catholic Church thing, doesn't he? Yeah. As he gets to his dying years, he really is trying. It's like Pandora's box. He's trying to put everything back in the box, isn't he? And backtrack a bit. So at this point, being that vocal and that up for change and stuff when he's trying to dial it back a notch it's just the worst combination isn't it yeah absolutely so it's kind of a a, a, like you said it's a it's a weird situation where Henry VIII has caused this situation and now being too Protestant and being too like kind of wanting reforms in in the church was outrageous at this period and so it definitely that that part of her beliefs was definitely part of her downfall the fact that she was just too protestant uh, for the royal family for the church and for the state she also was a, a pamphleter so she would post pamphlets and she would preach as well which is again very unusual for a woman so being in the public eye as a very strong female presence in the protestant religion was just you know there's lots of boxes there that would have disagreed with the with the kind of situation at the time and um, she also carried um writings by protestants who had previously been arrested and some of them had been executed so she was caught with 
writings that were basically banned at the time, which was one of the reasons she was first arrested. Um, and she eventually was taken to the Tower of London. So again, there's a lot of amazing London links with a lot of the, the women I'm going to talk about for obvious reasons. Um, but one of the, the sad things about Anne is she's actually one of the only women on record to have been tortured at the Tower of London. Um, and being an educated woman, the records of her torturing actually exist. She managed yeah. to smuggle them out. Um, and again, they're not the happiest uh, read. She talks about being placed on the rack, which I'm sure many listeners will, will know um, is very, very painful. She was harmed so much by the, the kind of interrogation by being tortured in this way that actually eventually when she was um, executed by a burning at the stake, um, she had to be carried on a chair and placed because she couldn't stand because um, she had dislocated too many of her ligaments um, and, and her bones had popped out of their sockets. So it's, you know, a very painful uh, account. If anyone wants to read it, it's accessible online. Um, but uh, what's really interesting is is after she uh, is is executed, her story that she kind of wrote gets kind of rewritten by two different people. Um, and it's actually these two accounts that are very uh, problematic. Some of them, um, for example, the one written by a man called John Bale, he's actually really misogynistic. And his tones of her, her work, he basically interprets uh, her words as the fact that um, Anne was actually you know kind of ignorant and didn't really understand what was going on and that's how she got herself in this situation and she was a weak woman and all of these things so that's extremely unfortunate the other account which is written by a man called uh john fox um mm. his is a little better um but there is a lot that would have been edited and removed which obviously from a historical point of view is extremely frustrating um when things are edited especially you know from a woman's perspective. Um, what does always come across about Anne is that she was very progressive for her time. Um, she had repeated confrontations with male authority figures, including her father, as I said, her husband. You know, even during her interrogation, um, she kind of mocked the men uh, who were interrogating her. Um, and she said, you know, things like it's against St. Paul's learning that she being a woman should interpret scriptures, especially when there are so many wise men to do so for her. Um, so, you know, she, she was, terrifies them, doesn't she? Basically, Yeah, yeah she she honestly was just like nothing else at the time and they couldn't control her. Um, and because of that. It, it led to her downfall, unfortunately. Um, she very famously wrote a ballad, a ballad when she was in prison. Um, and the opening verse, uh, I think, is quite quite beautiful. She uh, she wrote, like as the armed knight appointed to the field with this world will I will fight and faith shall be my shield, um, which I think is quite is quite a powerful uh, opening verse. So, yeah, very, very prolific kind of woman in her time, despite only living, you know, for for a couple of decades. Um, this is the thing. She's only what, 25, 26? Yeah, yeah, yeah 20, 26 when when she was executed. It's insane, isn't it? And it, do we know what happened to her after she died? Do we know where they buried her? No, well, she's burnt. She was burnt at the stake, so I don't, I don't know exactly what happened um, in terms of records. There are a, a kind of a bit 
um, like accounts about the execution, which again, you kind of got to take with a pinch of salt because there's some people who say that, you know, she was helped um, die quicker. Some people say that she never cried out at all. And so there is this overbearing idea that they, they definitely, you know, history has kind of reflected her as a very strong woman, but yeah, unfortunately we don't kind of know what happened to her afterwards. Um, She's quite inspiring. I just bet she always struck me as someone. She just refuses to shut up for the sake yeah. of other people, doesn't she? She's just like, I could just give you what you want and stop talking and stop having opinions and stuff, or I could not. Yeah, well, that's what I really like about uh, kind of reading the account of 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 her when she was being tortured. It wasn't that she didn't say anything. It wasn't like she was on the rack and refused to speak. She would speak. She just wasn't telling them what they wanted. Yeah. She would just, she would just mock them and, and use her wit and her intelligence and quote bits from the Bible that were talking about what they were doing. And so she wasn't, she, re- she also refused to be silent, even though she, she, you know, she was in this awful situation. And I just think that does come across, to, you know, the more you read about her and, and read her own work. Yeah. I really like that one. Um, thank you for that one. <laughs> okay. uh, your next one, are we going to do a painter next? We are, yes. Um, Sarah Biffin, who I kind of came across um, when looking at uh, women that we could potentially talk about um, for our Women of the, Na- uh, the National Gallery Tour. Um, one of the things that you see a lot in early women painters is they tend to be restricted to certain types of art. Um, and Sarah was uh, more of a portrait painter but she did miniature portraits um, which are nowadays very collectible she is amazing though because she was born without any arms and um, without any legs so she taught herself how to read how to write how to sew using a needle she was very talented at embroidery um she would put the needle in in her teeth and that's how she would she would sew and eventually she taught herself uh, how to paint as well um Hang so, on. so miniature painting is a bitch anyway because you have to do everything yep. in miniature <laughs> like yep. with two hands mm-hmm. i wouldn't even try so she's doing this presumably with her mouth yeah with her mouth wow yeah it's it's and she does one of her um most famous paintings is actually her own self-portrait which I highly recommend people look up because it's actually a very like empowered painting um and she depicts herself despite you know having no limbs being very kind of her posture is very strong her face is very determined and I kind of love that that comes across and it was a self-portrait as well which I think is just amazing um so her her kind of journey into art is a bit unusual she effectively gets um scouted to join fairs and sideshows and it was her her kind of tag name was the limbless wonder and the idea was that people would actually go to these fairs and they would actually pay to watch her you know draw write um and you could pay for her to paint your portrait as well so although she did actually initially start in landscapes it, it became quite clear that her talent was was actually in portraits um and it was during this time that um she had exhibitions of her work were sold um paintings autographs you know all of this so she was quite quite well known in that kind of scene to the point where she attracted uh, attention from people higher up so there was a man called George Douglas the Earl of Morton who um effectively decided that he wanted to see if this was true he had heard rumors about this amazingly talented painter and wanted to to see 
um, her in action. And he went to uh, a fair in 1808 um, and he paid for her to to paint. And um, he was so impressed that he decided to sponsor her to receive lessons from the Royal Academy painter William Craig. Um, So she managed to actually move to London where she had a studio in Bond Street. And she actually went on to have a few of her paintings um, accepted by the Royal Academy, as well as winning uh, a medal in 1821 for her art. Um, She also was commissioned by the Royal Family to paint miniatures of a few of them. Again, I haven't been able to really find which members of the Royal Family, um, but I imagine that in itself. Apparently, a few of them are still in the Royal Collection today. Um, these paintings by Sarah. Um, unfortunately, when the Earl died, she actually lost her sponsored uh, her, her sponsorship and unfortunately ran into a bit of financial trouble. Um, but she was eventually awarded a pension by the royal family, um, which again reiterates her kind of connection with them. Um, she ended up moving to Liverpool, where she retired for a bit and then decided to come back later in her life. Um, and eventually there was a public subscription uh, arranged to actually help finance her life uh, in her later years. Um, so, yeah, she she was very prolific, prolific uh, in kind of the 1820s to 18, like 40s time um and she ended up dying in 1850 at the age of 66 um so yeah absolutely amazing probably one of the ways to to show this is actually how much her art has sold in recent years i um, just saw that an engraving of the miniature was 137,000. one of those went for yep absolutely done by someone else not actually done by her um yeah so just an engraving of her self-portrait yeah um so it was estimated to sell for for about a thousand pounds, and actually when it went for over a hundred thousand, and that was just uh, it was a yeah an engraving of a portrait self portrait she had painted. Um, so that should tell you in itself, kind of her you know how talented she was. Um, there were a few quite a few good comments after the sale because obviously it was so much more than anyone was expecting, and a mm. few of the the kind of art world commented on this showing that you know it it just highlights the fact that she was so talented and you know her the fact that she had a disability did attract bidders because they had a profound respect for her being able to overcome that and still kind of make a name for herself and you know it's still very difficult um you know in our days and we're talking you know in the in the 1800s um and you know they can think of few artists who achieved this over being able to overcome this greater than Sarah um so I think yeah she's definitely someone people should know about and should definitely try and see her art when it is on display in royal collections and things like that that's amazing um yeah, do if you're listening to this, do Google some of her stuff. I can't believe that she could achieve that with her mouth. Just like by nature of it, you're getting the right as you're painting. If it's in your mouth, you've got less control over where you put your eyes to paint, how close yeah. you put the the miniature to you or far away to get a perspective on it as well. It just yeah. absolutely incredible. Like you said as well, with miniature painting, everything has to be so fine and detailed and, you know, there's almost kind of nowhere to hide with it because it is a small painting. So people are going to stare at it a lot more intensely when they do look at this art. And so, yeah, to be able to create those fine lines and, and to create the art and, and also to to kind of have a reputation that kind of 
went out of just sideshows and fairs and actually led to her being you know heard about in in kind of upper classes is a huge achievement yeah it's bonkers I'm just like I'm even thinking about so this is like my obsession now they used a magnifying <laughs> glass didn't they but how yes. do you paint with a paintbrush in your mouth when the magnifying glass is in the way she's just incredible yeah absolutely wow um we're going sort of back to politics, aren't we, with the next one that you've picked? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I chose Mary Prince mainly because uh, we've just launched a, a new tour about the women of Bloomsbury. And she actually has a plaque in Bloomsbury. And I reckon of all the women I talk about on that tour, she's probably the one people know least about. And actually, I think people should probably know more about her than some of the other women maybe I do I do speak about. So I want you to include her mainly because her story is one that if you don't know it, you, you should um so she was born around 1788 um and actually we don't really know what happened to her at the end of her life I'll explain that a little bit in a little bit um but her time frame is 1788 to about 1833 so she was um born in Bermuda um and she was actually born into um slavery um so her mother was uh, a slave and her father was also a slave. She actually had a few sisters um, who she was separated from um, at the age of 12 when she was sold into uh, another family. They were sold into, into different households. Um, so what kind of happens is she kind of bounces around various places. So she's in Bermuda for a bit. We know she ends up going to um, salt ponds. Um, she also ends up uh, in Antigua as well. And she kind of is sold uh, kind of to various uh, owners because she seems to come across as a, again, a very strong woman who any opportunity that presented itself, she refused to kind of be passive with. So um, even during kind of one of the accounts that she later writes about is um one of her masters um, wanted, you know, she dropped some things and he was yelling at her and tried to beat her. And she she kind of ran out the room and threw things at him. And so she kind of would would fight back. And it led to the fact that because of this, it meant that she was kind of sold on and, and bounced around quite a lot. Um, working in the salt ponds was very painful for her. She spoke about kind of permanent disfigurement on her legs because the salt would burn her skin. Um, and they would work 17 hours straight on occasion. Um, uh, it's not quite sure how she ended up at the salt pond. Some people think it's actually a punishment for her protesting against some previous treatments. Um, but yeah, she ends up kind of being bounced around. Uh, eventually in 1815, she sold to John Adams Wood, um, who is a horrible human being. I have <laughs> unfortunately had to uh, read quite a lot about him. And yeah, he's not a very nice person. Um, she, at the, during this time, she works as a domestic servant for him. So she helps nurse his children, wash clothes, attend bed chambers, chambers etc. Um, it's during this time she actually gets involved with a church um, in Antigua. And she actually has learned to read and write basic kind of words so up until this point she was uh, illiterate she ends up being baptized um, at the church uh, a couple of years later and then she gets married to a man called Daniel James who's actually a free man he was a he was a slave who actually bought his own freedom so this in itself led um, Mary Prince to suffer at the hands of John Adams Wood because he disliked this fact that a she got married without his permission 
um, but B, the fact that this freed slave would hang around their household, you know, hang around the estate, basically giving people ideas that this is possible. And so Mary was actually beaten more and she actually recalls that her flogging increased after her marriage as a, as a response to this. Um, and so it kind of all just comes about by 1828, the Wood family uh, have moved to London to uh, sort out education for their children and they take Mary with them. It's not clear whether Mary requested to go or whether they decided to take her, um, but she's taken to London. And this is where things get a little bit grey, because in 1828, it's kind of the public opinion in London is not in favour of slavery. But slavery mm. technically wasn't illegal. So, okay. yeah, it's uh, it's a strange situation where Mary kind of comes to London and finds herself in the eyes of people free. Um, but she's informed that if she were to travel back to Antigua, where her husband is, she could be re-enslaved. And so she ends up leaving the Wood household Um again there were many fallings out and records of kind of fights going on and, and things like that and Mary speaking out when she shouldn't um uh, but she unfortunately struggles to find employment um and this is one of the reasons she stays so long in London with uh ad, um with Wood eventually she ends up being associated with the anti-slavery movement so she meets a man called Thomas Pringle um who basically employs her in his household and attempts to try and free Mary. So there's various petitions that they try to um, put to Parliament to get her freedom. He also tries to appeal to um, Wood, who has moved back to Antigua at this point and left Mary in London. And he writes a letter back saying she's too dangerous to be free. Um, you know, if we grant her her freedom, you know, there's no police that could control her, um, which I think is an interesting letter back maybe because it really shows Mary's you know presence and the fact that she is considered a dangerous woman um eventually um they decide that actually a, a good way to grant Mary's freedom and maybe not just Mary's but to actually help the anti-slavery movement would be for people to hear Mary's story and so mm. being not so literate um they pringle gets her to uh, narrate her story and he gets a woman called susanna strickland to write it down it's then edited and in 1831 becomes a published book called the history of mary prince so this is still a book that's available for people to read today um and i do i do recommend people do because it's it's actually not just an amazing account of you know this time but it's also the first account of the life of a black woman to be published in the uk when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just like a female Frederick Douglass, isn't she? Yes, absolutely. Brilliant. Um, Yeah, the response was pretty pretty positive, actually, Um, although there were a few uh, libel cases that were raised out of the book so Thomas Pringle actually sued um, a man an editor of a newspaper who basically turned around and said the account was false it can't have happened um, so Pringle actually sued her uh, sued this gentleman and received five pound in damages for it um, the second the second libel case was actually um, John Adams Wood he actually sued Thomas Pringle as the editor claiming that the book misrepresented his character um i he actually unfortunately won the case um of course he did yeah which is annoying because everything i've read about him i doubt that she misrepresented his character um i think if anything she was probably too nice about him um and could have could have even been harsher um so yeah so the fact that it did kind of create this uproar in the uk and it did raise a lot of um public opinion it's it is claimed and and you can understand how it is seen with its success it go ends up being reprinted a couple in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. ...times in its first year. Um, It is seen as almost a catalyst to the anti-slavery campaign. This idea that the horrors that she talks about, the physical violence of the owners, you know, it kind of really does kind of kickstart and and effectively lead to the abolition act um a couple years later so it's definitely an influence there um which is yeah definitely important to know um the other thing that's really great about the history of mary prince is that it isn't necessarily just statistics given it is like i said a first person account and it's actually really honest um and some of the the kind of ideas in it sometimes when you read history around this it, you know people do feel uncomfortable because of what happened but and so she almost becomes an awkward heroine in the sense that that people don't necessarily want to remember her because it's remembering a darker past mm. but actually it's really really important that you know she was able to have her story told because so many others wouldn't have um she did get a plaque a commemorative plaque in bloomsbury it was done by the um Nubian jack community trust um so it's not an official blue plaque but it's actually on the side of uh senate house so if anyone's okay. ever around that it's really annoyingly difficult to see it's a it's like a bronze plaque and it's behind the gates of senate house <laughs> so if it's not open you have to kind of squint to see it but um it is it has been there um, for, for over 10 years now. And she was included in the London uh, Museum uh, at Docklands, the uh, Sugar and Spice exhibition that they did there. Um, there was a side and a section about Mary Prince and her influence and her time. Uh, and so, yeah, she's, she's definitely someone that people should know about. Unfortunately, 
We don't really know what happened to her after the libel cases. We know she testified mm. at both of them, but then she kind of just disappears. Um, so I think the optimist in me, I kind of hope she went back to Antigua, you know, as a free woman, you know, reunited with her husband. You can see a, a kind of Hollywood movie kind of ending. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, unfortunately, I nobody has yet to find what actually happened to Mary Prince um, after 1833. So yeah, a, a great story, but kind of a bit anticlimactic about the ending. I feel like we need to go out and find what happened to her. I wonder if that, would she not have been getting royalties still? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know. Let's try and find out. Yeah. <laughs> in reading this, it's one of those where I'm like, is it something you need to have someone in like the archives there if they have them is it possible to to look at you know family history back far enough to trace this because yeah she kind of just disappears from from our records um so I would odd, say in 1837 you get did she definitely die in 1833 no 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 so we don't know when she died we just know she disappears in 1833 there's no reference to her post that period hmm, so 1837 nationalized record keeping comes in so we <laughs> maybe <laughs> well, it sounds like a project new but, um... session new rabbit hole <laughs> if there's anyone in antigua listening that can help um give becky a shout yeah let me know i, w- I honestly i just want to find out now as well yeah. um so I'll, I'll update if any if anything comes in i'll let you know <laughs> brilliant we'll do a mary prince special but today uh you've got one more for us yeah, so um, this one's a bit of a weird one, um, but I just post lockdown, I think everyone was cooking a lot in lockdown. And so I came across the first woman to actually publish a kind of modern cookery book. And Brilliant. I just thought it was a really nice kind of kind of just thing to know about, um, especially because we actually have a lot of kind of things we should give her in terms of credit because she so Eliza her name is Eliza Acton she was born in 1799 died in 1859 so again just time frame um she was also a poet so she wrote poems before turning her hand to cookery and I actually think that is actually part of the reason her cookbook sold so well is because they had this kind of beautiful poetry about how to cook um and really detailed by the way her cookery books um she it's, she was actually um, born and raised in Suffolk, um, so a, a lot of kind of Ipswich links. And actually one of the poems she ended up publishing was called The Chronicles of the Castle Framlingham, which if anyone has listened to the Ed Sheeran song, that's the castle he sings about. So I like to think, you know, she was writing about the castle before it was cool to do so um but she she was known for her kind of humor and wit in her poetry and eventually her poems kind of lost a little bit of their their momentum and so she was decided to turn her hand to this cookery book that she published in 1845 and it was known as modern modern cookery for private families um so the thing that the book does which is really uh, kind of instrumental and something we can appreciate is it kind of introduces the way recipes should be written for people to be able to cook them it takes them out of kind of you know larger cooking settings brings them to the home and she does things like that we kind of take for granted like listing the ingredients that you'll need this was something that was kind of revolutionary <laughs> for the time um giving you know timings on preparation versus cooking time which again is something that's so helpful nowadays 
but at the time in 1845 would have been you know completely different from how recipe books would have been written um the recipes that she includes this book is extremely long there's i think it's over like 700 pages long so it's a big cookbook and it take she took 10 years to write it and it covers pretty much everything you would need to know to be a chef um, or to to cook any type of meal. There's a chapter on uh, how to carve different meats, where different meats have uh, come from in the animal as well, uh, how to fillet different fishes and how to tell the difference between different types of fish as well. So you don't get sold a rubbish type of fish at a fishmonger. She's like, you're looking for this type and there's actually drawings to show what types of fish work better with different um kind of recipes about i reckon about a third of the the book she's a she's a woman after my own heart because a third of it's on desserts um yeah yeah and there's some sugary desserts (laughs) she honestly there's ones that are like more sugar than anything else um there's recipes for different types of vegetables and there's about seven ways to cook cauliflower which you know i think cauliflower is a is an interesting uh <laughs> vegetable um my favorite one is the one that includes cheese because you know cauliflower cheese is mm. is amazing um she also is the first person we know of to recommend cooking brussels sprouts which i, I, I kind of have to not thank her for i want to um, go you yeah <laughs> yeah so it's the first recipe known in the english language for brussels sprouts <laughs> so every involve? pardon what does it involve uh, really not very much steaming is effectively the method (laughs) she talks about taking off the outside leaves steaming them and serving them on toast or with butter um (laughs) again brussels sprouts on toast anyone bread and butter could save brussels sprouts have you tried making any of them and not yet, but um, there is a very nice recipe um, for Christmas pudding in there that uh, includes a lot of alcohol, which sounds amazing. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe definitely get get around to cooking some of them and see how they go. Um, like this is a YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah, cooking out of this 700 page book with all these yep. different recipes. <laughs> definitely, definitely uh, something that if if i'm not going to say it but if if i have an extra extra time on my hands any time in the future might be a future project yeah um yeah so it's just such an interesting cookery book because it it honestly it just covers every single area and what's really nice about reading it as well i kind of skimmed through it over the last week um it she kind of gives her opinion on some of the dishes so she she kind of talks about you know you can do it like this i prefer cooking something like this and if you want to add a little bit of kind of canine pepper you know that kind of adds to it and so she she's very kind of it's a very kind of nice flowing book it's quite easy to read because it has this kind of personal element to a cookery book which obviously again is something that a lot of chefs try to do now when they bring recipe books out is they do try and make it you know about personal uh kind of stories or or different versions of recipes that they've tried and so this this is you know again quite important for that um she was kind of quite there's a lot of controversies raised not necessarily because of the meals although there was one um that was called curried toast with anchovies which i'm not again sure i want to try <laughs> like there was a lot of curries in this book as well by the way she was a big fan of uh including uh 
cuisine from all around the world. So she included French French recipes, curries, um, chutneys and things like that as well. So, you know, it is is really all inclusive. Um, But yeah, one of the things that kind of came out of it is that being the first kind of modern modern cookery book that was published, um, people just plagiarized loads of her recipes and she actually when the book goes to um the 1855 edition she wrote in the preface the manner in which large portions of my volume have been appropriated by contemporary authors without the slightest acknowledgement of the source from which they have derived is insulting (laughs) Um, i feel you which I was going to say, you know, from a historical point of view, plagiarizing is just you've got no shame if, if that happens. Yeah. Um, probably the most famous case or, or, or a version of this is uh, Isabel Benton, who is actually more famous for her cookery book, which came out in 1861. It sold you know, milli- a million copies. So it wasn't uh, Eliza Acton's wasn't as successful, but it was the first of its kind. In uh, Isabel Benton's best-selling book, Mrs. Uh, Benton's Book of Household Management, um, there's about 150 recipes that were directly taken from Eliza Acton. No, yeah, it's not. It's not even subtle. It's not even like one or two. It's a, It's about 150. <laughs> we actually um, have um, an episode of History Hack about cut and paste journalism and how about this was basically okay. allowed at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 very unfortunate. But I kind of like that Eliza kind of wrote in her her preface, you know, yeah, it might be okay, but it's like quite shameful to do. At least give me credit, um, <laughs> which I think is quite quite cool. Um, but yeah, you, you see her work being even referenced by like modern chefs. So Dida Smith has spoken out about the influence modern cookery had on you know today's um, world as well. So yeah, it's it's definitely a, a, an interesting book with some interesting recipes, but also was was quite revolutionary for the time when it when it was published. Um, she is buried uh, in St John's uh, Cemetery in Hampstead Church in London. And just in case any of you happen to be around there and want to seek out Eliza's grave. Brilliant. Oh, she sounds really cool as well. <laughs> yeah, no, when I was reading the uh, recipes, I definitely, um, there were a few where I was like, oh, that sounds good. Um, oh, the other thing I should say is, although it was pitched at kind of middle class families and there's some ingredients that that were definitely for kind of the middle to upper classes like you know there's truffle and champagne and things like that there were versions throughout the book that you could make if you were doing it on a budget which I you know think was really cool yeah so she she would make like left or or, and and cooking the whole animal as well so if you're using an animal how to use all parts of it so there's no waste so like things like that I I actually think meant that her book was probably more successful because it could be used by a wider audience than just kind of what it was targeted at initially. That's brilliant. Um, Becky, thank you so much for coming on to share four more women with us with London links. Uh, Give everybody some details because now we're coming out of lockdown. People can come and do tours with you. Yeah. Where can they get hold of you? Where can they find out about your tours? Yeah, absolutely. So our bookings are currently open. Um, uh, You can find all the information about all the walks we do uh, and dates available on our website at www.womenoflondon.org.uk. And we're also posting updates about our tours on our Twitter uh, and Instagram so at women of LDN excellent thank you so much no, thank you for having me
You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.